is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by one of my favorite attorneys, legal commentators out there in the public space, Robert Barnes. So Robert and I are going to discuss a few things. We're going to start off with the mind-blowing billion-dollar verdict against uh, his friend Alex Jones for the comments he made during the Sandy Hook tragedy. Why should we care about that? What exactly happened there? We're going to discuss the recent, one of the most revealing stories we've seen so far, detailing government censorship and their coordination with tech companies and tech platforms to censor speech, censor stories that the regime didn't like. There's documents that have been leaked to The Intercept and uh, in court basically detailing how the government reached out these tech companies to censor stories on a whole host of issues, including COVID. And uh, then we're going to discuss sort of the non-government organizations that are increasingly influencing what happens not only in the United States, but around the world. Organizations like the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. And Robert has some interesting analysis on the 2024 presidential race, what the Republican ticket would look like, what the Democratic ticket may look like. So, Robert, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's start off there. Your friend Alex Jones, we're told, you know, he's this horrible dude. The media has been cheering on the this unheard of $1 billion verdict, essentially, in a defamation case. Why should we care about Alex Jones, given that he's worse than Hitler, according to the media. What exactly happened there? Uh, it's an extraordinary case that is an extraordinary threat, not only to free speech and free press and free association in America, but the ability, uh, the willingness and the readiness and the ability to challenge and contest institutional governmental narratives, but also a threat to due process to the entire American civil justice system, to the right to trial by jury, uh, and all of it. And it's all represented in the Alex Jones cases concerning Sandy Hook. So the uh, what happened in the case loosely is that basically they accused Alex Jones of being responsible for any harassment or stalking or bad behavior that ever took place towards victims of the uh, towards families of the victims of Sandy Hook and towards FBI agents who merely investigated Sandy Hook, which is a very underexamined part of the case. The reality was Jones had very little to do with any of that. Uh, 99% of what Infowars published, printed, or broadcast during the time period said Sandy Hook happened. Indeed, the Sandy Hook denier community hated Jones. They they accused him of really being Bo Bridges. They accused him of you know uh, of being a sellout and all the rest because he mostly, for most of that time period, rejected any Sandy Hook denierism. Mm -hmm. A few times over a seven-year time period, he uh, suggested that maybe the Sandy Hook deniers were right. And that's what he got sued for, for those, you know, basically about seven minutes of words out of seven million words published and printed and broadcast about it. Because they could not prove their theory 
they knew their theory was wrong. The plaintiff's lawyers in all these cases knew that they're blaming Alex Jones for everything bad that ever happened to these people was not true. They had to resort to every uh, gamesmanship and to try to get corrupt courts to go along with it. And they were happy to do so in Austin and in Connecticut. So you saw courts issue rulings that have never been issued in the history of America. Uh, you had a, an Alex Jones and uh, Infowars. You had a defendant who sat for dozens uh, of hours of depositions, produced hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and information to the point where they produced information that has never been produced in the history of a media defamation case. And yet, because uh, they didn't, uh, the, the court said that they defaulted and hadn't produced anything, uh, which was just a lot. And what was happening was the plaintiff's lawyers would say, give us the proof that you're guilty. And when he said, I, there is no proof I'm guilty because I'm not guilty, they said, judge, he's hiding the proof that he's guilty. Default him. And then the judge defaulted him. That's the kind of insanity. The, the, it was show trial built on show trial. There are Soviet, Soviet show trials mm -hmm. more representative of, of the American ideals of justice than the Alex Jones trials. So he got a default judgment for not complying enough with discovery? Is that, that was the... Allegation. That was the pretext, uh, and yeah, pretext. even though he produced more discovery than any media defendant has in the history of a defamation mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's what default is a very dangerous tool right. that is supposed to be very limited to people who don't produce anything. Don't, mm -hmm. Exactly. Don't participate yeah. at all. They just never show up. Right. Jones sat for hundreds and hundreds of hours of mm -hmm. uh, and is and, and infowars of depositions. I mean, more depositions than the New York Times or anyone else in the media has ever sat for through a defamation mm -hmm. case. Produced so much documents that at trial, the plaintiff's lawyers could present how much money he made on a specific day at a specific time. I mean, it's like that, that's unheard of. Right. When is that ever compelled in the defamation case? I'm sure you would have liked it as well. If the people you were suing, if they didn't comply with, with a few things in discovery, they get automatic default judgment. I mean, that is for people, not lawyers. That's, that's such an extreme measure. When somebody has been, you know, as you said, seeing for depositions and, and complying with other aspects of the discovery. Yeah, in fact, they call it the death penalty sanction. And right. the reason why it's a big problem is it's a way for courts, corrupt courts, to circumvent the right to trial by jury. Because these rights were protected both under the state constitutions and uh, arguably under the United States Constitution under the Seventh Amendment. So it's the right to – the whole point of that is that a jury, and these were liberal jury pools, liberal Democratic jury pools in Connecticut and Texas. But the, all they were at, they were told, Alex Jones is guilty. Alex Jones isn't allowed to defend himself. At trial, he wasn't even allowed to present a whole bunch of evidence. They, the plaintiffs were allowed to present evidence that had nothing at all to do with the case. They were allowed to tell every sad thing that had ever happened to them in their, in their lives, none of which had anything to do with Alex Jones. Talked extensively, those that had family members that died at Sandy Hook, talk extensively about those family members and their whole lives and everything about their lives. Alex Jones had nothing to do with the death of those children. And so that that's how insane it was. Things we've never, it was pure show trial, pure uh, uh, public theater. And it really made a mockery of the American civil justice process. And nothing better represented that than the verdicts that came in at the end. Mm -hmm. So when you issue a billion dollar verdict, uh, the biggest verdict in the history of libel law, one of the biggest verdicts in the history of America for any kind of personal injury claim mm -hmm. ever, Based on seven minutes of seven words that based, that the, a lot of the plaintiffs admitted they'd never even heard, that didn't that almost none of them referenced any single name of the plaintiff by name or by image or anything. It, I mean the uh, that they were so upset and offended by that they never issued a correction or retraction letter until the eve of suit. Mm -hmm. the, the, these are unheard of. And in fact, and to give an illustration to, see, to show people how insane this is, this included an FBI agent, right. an FBI lawyer who had no family who died at Sandy Hook. He got $90 million. $90 million. $90 million. I right. mean, it's just 
people who die, uh, they're, they're, uh, who, who are wrongfully killed, mm-hmm. the average verdict in America is $1 million. Right. He got 90 times that. For he admit no Joe's never loss. even talked about him. Right. Never even. Anyway, I mean, it's just it, it, that. And now, and what do the plaintiffs' lawyers want? Guess what? Their punitive damages want. They want three trillion dollars. Oh, right, right. Three I saw trillion. that. Three trillion dollars. I mean, that that's uh, more than fifteen percent of the entire gross domestic product of the United States economy. That that is more than the Armenians requested for the Armenian genocide uh, for the people who caused it. That's, that's how more than nuts the biggest company in the world is worth. Right. That's, exactly. Uh, Apple, two trillion and Aramco's around the same. Yeah. So it shows the absurdity of this. This is making a complete mockery of American civil justice. It is a direct attack on the First Amendment. And they chose Alex Jones for two reasons. One, Alex Jones doesn't have a lot. His, his base, his audience is a very working class audience. His audience is not a big professional class audience. So he doesn't have a lot of conventional political protection amongst the judges and lawyers and media and press. Uh, and particularly as to the mistakes he himself has admitted he made in his coverage of Sandy Hook. But uh, at the, at, that's part one problem. And just like he was the template for social media big tech censorship, uh, you know, to, that was the first one to be deplatformed right. everywhere. And, right. and remember what they said at the time. They said, oh, no, this is specific to Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. It won't spread to you. It'll yeah. spread to the president of the United States within two years. Right. Mm-hmm. The uh, and so that's part of it. The other part of it is the many people on the right uh, in institutional areas of influence, your Megyn Kelly's, et cetera, uh, don't provide honest coverage of the Alex Jones case because they have disagreements with him in a range of topics. And they have ignored. I mean, Ted Cruz issued some idiotic statements. These are they should be paying attention because they're using this as a template that if they can weaponize the legal system in such a way that they can punish you for dissident speech. Such that FBI people who who, question, who don't like the fact you question their work product can now sue you for ninety million dollars. They can bankrupt you for eternity uh, based on this. And the plaintiffs' lawyers all made clear that was their goal. Their goal was to take away his microphone, prevent him from ever being able to speak out again. And the, and the most significant thing about Alex Jones, for those that don't know him or that only know him concerning Sandy Hook, is he's the most significant voice on the political right that questions the deep state, that questions wars, that questions global conflicts, that questions bad trade deals, that challenge the lockdowns, that challenge the vaccines, that challenge the mandates. That's what's distinct about him, what separates him from, say, Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh or anybody else on the right. He has been the strongest critic of, of uh, governmental corruption of anybody on the political right. They, you know, strong supporter of Edward Snowden, strong supporter of Julian Assange, strong supporter of Bill Binning, strong supporter of any whistleblowers that question the surveillance state, that question big tech collusion, that question uh, of the war machine. And that's why they really want to take him out. It's not because of his views on, on Sandy Hook. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's because of his views attacking the deep state and its crimes against American people. And right. he's a critical, essential, fundamental voice that they want to censor, shame, and suppress. Yeah, so, and, and there's every reason to believe, as we saw with censorship, start off with people like Jones, who are sort of on least mainstream of the right-wing voices, and then go more mainstream and more mainstream as well. And, and as you said, I mean, so, you know, the First Amendment protects basically all speech other than defamation, you know, speech directed towards imminent lawless, incitement of imminent lawless action, et cetera. I don't see that, uh, you know, he incited imminent lawless action in any of the statements he made. The Purdue Pharma executives were fined $600 million. I think that was the damages claim for basically killing 
thousands of people, knowingly killing tens of thousands of people, hooking them onto their drugs, knowing that how addicted they were. And Alex Jones gets a billion, he gets almost double the amount of a damage claim. What are the strongest appeal grounds for him? Because I, I just, I can't see how this stands up. The problem is the politics of the courts, not the substance of the law, because on the substance of the law, all of it should be overturned. He was denied his right to bring an anti-slap motion. He was, he was denied his right to bring a motion to dismiss. He was denied his right to bring motions for summary judgment. He was denied certain discovery rights. He was denied his right to trial by jury at the trial. He was denied a right to defend himself at all at any level at the trial I mean, in a meaningful manner. He was told that if he didn't stick to the script that the court ordered him to do so, that the court would jail him for speaking out. If, the, if he said he was innocent, he went to jail. That was the nature of this trial. Again, Soviet show trials did a better job than this uh, at the public theater they created. He's got very robust First Amendment issues because, as you note, nothing that he did caused imminent incitement of actual criminal behavior, which is what's required under the First Amendment. And he didn't even refer to these people by name. It's the constitutional requirement of colloquium. People forget about that part of New York right, Times versus right. Sullivan. Mm -hmm. You know, they remember the actual malice part. They forget the colloquium part. And what that what does that mean? It means you got to you got to lie about somebody and you got to identify them. Now, you can identify them by image or by name. But what you can't do is say, hey, I'm part of a group that uh, you that you made statements about that people might think misrepresent the truth about me. That's never been a basis of a claim unless the group is so small, it's obviously identifable. Mm -hmm. Here, nobody knew these people. I mean, the, what the court said is, well, if you Googled and researched and did a bunch of things, you could maybe guess and figure out who some of them might be. That's never been the legal standard. I mean, I filed suit for the Covington kids. I could do so because I could sue for the people who are physically identified by image. Uh, that was the basis. I couldn't sue for anyone who wasn't physically identified because the law was clear. You don't have no you don't have grounds to do so. Uh, so it's the, it's the he's got a very robust First Amendment defense, First Amendment argument right out of the gate. He's also got unusually strong Fifth Amendment due process arguments because he was stripped of all of his due process. There was no process that was given to Alex Jones. Uh, he was stripped of his Seventh Amendment right to trial by jury, and there are analog provisions in state law as well. Then there were all kinds. Basically, they took the rules of evidence and threw them out. Because what happened at the trial was anything the plaintiffs wanted came in, even if you know, 90% of it had nothing to do with damages claims. Um, and he wasn't allowed to present hardly any of his defense, even though most of it fit the definitions for the rules of evidence, even under the ludicrous default standards that were issued. The death penalty sanction was a violation of his right to trial by jury. Gagging him was a violation of his right to due process. And that rules of evidence... If there's a rule of evidence, uh, it was violated in the Alex Jones trials. That's how bad people who watch this, who were not Alex Jones fans, who thought maybe I was exaggerating, said this is even worse than you said. This is some of the worst judging, worst uh, court proceedings I've ever witnessed. This is bad theater that's a disgrace to American civil justice. And so if our courts care about American civil justice uh, and, its, and its integrity and the appear, at least the appearance of it, then the, this case will be completely mm -hmm. reversed and invalidated. Problem is the Court of Appeals in Austin has shown no interest in doing so, and the Court of Appeals in the Supreme Court of Connecticut has shown no interest to do so. Remember, this is the state that basically said you could sue a gun company when federal law said you couldn't for Sandy Hook and awarded the same plaintiff's lawyers $73 million. I mean, I mean, I mean they're just cashing in. It, it's, it's pimping out victimhood. It's really a disgusting uh, trend in American and Western society and culture. The bigger the victim you are, the bigger moral platform you are, the bigger the hero you are. Um, and I, I find that deeply problematic, mm -hmm. philosophically and morally. But yes, you yeah, should mean, be I, able to, but it's going to take the Texas Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, or U.S. Bankruptcy Court to do it because the other mm -hmm. courts are too corrupt to do it.
Yeah, I mean, it, it's really unbelievable. I mean, you can think Alex Jones is crazy. You can disagree with everything he says. I mean, I certainly disagree with some of the stuff he says. A lot of the stuff he says, probably. I don't watch him all that much, but you should be extremely troubled by this politicization of our justice system because constitutional rights don't mean much if you can just sort of get around them and they're not enforced, right? So the, it, I was I was extremely troubled by, by seeing this. Also want to talk to you about one of the most revealing stories we've seen on the matter of government censorship and tech censorship. It's basically made the news cycle recently. Documents leaked to The Intercept and also uncovered in a, in a court case demonstrating how the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, coordinating with all these tech companies, basically deputizing them to censor stories, censor information, censor people, silence them on matters that you know the ruling regime didn't like. And we saw a bit of this with the disinformation governance board that Biden tried to set up with, with the DHS, where you know, this, this task force would be created to basically go after and silence any story that they consider disinformation. And obviously, we've seen a lot of the things that the ruling regime considers disinformation actually ended up true, like on the COVID vaccines, their ability to prevent transmission, their ability to prevent infection, all that, you know, lockdowns. This disinformation board was going to go so far as to censor stories on the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. I mean, we're just talking about anything that the regime didn't want. I mean, this is really frightening stuff. And we actually have the receipts now to prove that this sort of thing went on. So if you're wondering, like, how did everybody, all these tech platforms, censor the Hunter Biden story at once? Well, we have the answer now. We have the actual receipts showing them reaching out to all these different people, uh, all these different organizations. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Twitch, and, and coordinating with them. So first thing is, given that this actually started in the Trump administration, unbeknownst to Trump, and then it accelerated under Biden. And given that, well, some of this happened under Trump's nose, right? People spying on his administration from within, people undermining his policies from within. Is he the best solution going forward to combat some of these, these deep state civil liberties abuses? And if not, what can be done to root out some of this dysfunction and corruption? Obviously, we, we've seen with the, the NSA Snowden situation where they were illegally spying on Americans. We, we constantly see these administrative agencies weaponized for political purposes and violating civil liberties. So like, what can be done? And does this hurt Trump's case of, of draining the swamp if some of this started under him? Well, it's definitely time to deep six the deep state. And that's the only solution. And that means getting rid of or dramatically shrinking the CIA, the National Security Agency, large aspects of the apparatus of the Pentagon and the military industrial complex, the State Department and federal government agencies writ large. We don't need a Department of Homeland Security. We never have. We, uh, you know, having, you know, the, the fatherland securitas like the Nazis was probably not a great idea to begin with. Uh, and so I think that this is a reminder of the necessity of that, because a lot of this did start under Trump. The, his own executive branch waged war on him on a daily basis, uh, caused uh, arguably uh, both impeachments to occur. Definitely the first impeachment to occur was his own executive branch waging war on his public policy because they wanted to wage war in Ukraine and Trump did not. Uh, and, you know, all the scandals with Russiagate, all, everything else, the overt, open political weaponization of the Justice Department that has accelerated and escalated under the Biden administration to such a degree that they're currently trying to cover up the complicit crimes mm -hmm. of the uh, Pfizer uh, involved in the vaccine, as an example. Right. I represent the lead whistleblower in, uh, on behalf of the American people bringing suit against Pfizer. 
And the U.S. government recognized that her claims were valid uh, and investigated them for a year, kept the proceedings sealed on that basis. And now the, that Pfizer wants to dismiss the case and uh, all of a sudden the Biden administration is implicated by the scandal because they mandated a dangerous uh, drug on people that turned out not to meet the promises of safety, efficacy or even being a vaccine that inoculated against transmissibility mm-hmm. uh, or getting the disease. The all of a sudden they're moving in. They're saying, please, judge, dismiss this case. Don't let it get to discovery. So it gives some sense of the scale and the scope of what we're dealing with. But the intercept uh, releases are not a shock to some of us. Uh, I work with Robert Kennedy in his suit against Facebook, uh, now called Meta, uh, that's currently pending before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The biggest case about collusion. They clearly targeted him. They had communications between uh, Fauci and Zuckerberg. They alleged that there was a, that this intercept type file existed. And the federal district courts were like, ah, we're going to pretend that these people aren't, in, in your very well-chosen word, deputized agents of the federal government in discriminating against people in violation of the First Amendment. The government cannot circumvent its constitutional limitations by deputizing private actors to do its right. illicit bidding. And that's that. the intercept evidence proves, the intercept story proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that's mm-hmm. what took place. I mean, they opened up a special portal so government agents could go right. in and say, get rid of this, get mm-hmm. rid of this person, get rid of this statement, get rid of this, censor this. And in, almost within hours, that's what happened. That's what took place. Uh, so it shows that, in fact, the collusion ran so deep that these were really government actors suppressing and censoring speech since at least 2020. Uh, and throughout the pandemic, everything about the lockdowns was being suppressed. Everything about people who supported the Great Barrington de- Declaration famously removed from many social media sites. But the, probably Wait, the best, that, uh, the, the Great Barrington. So the, the people who a, a lot of experts, doctors, medical professionals, public health professionals got together and said in the Great Barrington Declaration, where we're going is wrong. That these lockdowns are wrong, shuttering schools is wrong, telling people to stay inside their homes is wrong, mass house arrest is not a functional public policy for a pandemic that's driven by inborn uh, air spread uh, illnesses. Right. Uh, that, you know, focusing on vaccines is not going to be a practical solution. Mask mandates are not a solution. Social distancing rules don't make sense. Denying people the right to go to funerals or weddings is, is going to have a net negative effect. That you're going to have all these deleterious and damaging effects side effects from the consequences of these public health policies that aren't even being measured. And these public health policies are unlikely to achieve much of the accomplishments they are claiming they will achieve. So these are professionals all across the globe because they were so, so many of them high status. Some of them were you know, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, some of the most well-respected institutions in, in public health. Some of their professors from these places were joining the Great Barrington Declaration. So they're like, oh, we can't have this. So Fauci demanded it be suppressed. Others demanded it be suppressed. And then that's what Twitter and YouTube and Facebook did. As part of all this, uh, Robert Kennedy, Children's Health Defense, you're talking about the most famous son of the most famous Democratic political family in America. Arguably the most famous, uh, well, not really arguably, the most famous American political family in America. Mm -hmm. And he was targeted. He was removed from Instagram. Children's Health Defense was removed from Facebook or heavily censored. Their ads couldn't reach people. Uh, There were false statements being relayed about anything they put up. Almost everything Robert Kennedy said is proven accurate about the inefficacy, lack of safety, public dangers of these core civil rights and civil liberties and basic human rights and human liberties being violated. Uh, but they targeted him because they understood how significant a voice he was as someone from the Democratic left saying these are dangerous 
policies and ideas right. and someone with a very independent voice in the family tradition. So what this reveals is these agencies have been work, uh, working hand and foot with the big tech uh, to censor dissident independent speech. They really corrupted the 2020 election by suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story mm-hmm. that now the media has all recognized was actually true all mm-hmm. along. That came, we now know from the intercept leaks that came from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Zuckerberg had admitted that to Joe Rogan a couple of months ago, but now we've got much more enhanced evidence to show it. So you had the, right. the FBI picking winners and losers uh, for the presidency of the United States who would govern them. This is a deep state that is out of control. That's why the only solution is the deep six, the deep state. It's just so scary. So one of the things you mentioned, the Hunter Biden laptop story, and we talk about you know, 2020 elections rigged or whatever, the... I mean, we have polling data that shows something like 20-something percent of the people who voted for Biden declared that they would have changed their vote had they known about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And that was pushed as being a part of Russian disinformation by agents within the FBI, and I believe the CIA as well signed on to that letter, right? With Robert F. Kennedy, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, like you mentioned, a, a, a liberal Democrat, the son of, you know, maybe next to Martin Luther King, the great civil rights champion. The reason why Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is, is so skeptical about, from, from the beginning, about these vaccines is because, and I've done a little bit of litigation in my own firm against some of these uh, pharmaceutical companies, because that, that's been his entire practice. So he sees firsthand, he's seen for like decades, these companies suppress unfavorable data, make you know misleading statements. Of course, they do some great work as well, but you know that that profit incentive is always there. So sometimes they're incentivized to cover up bad stories about their drugs or the test trials or, or what have you before they reach market in order to, to, to make a living. It was so interesting to see that the left wing of this country, I grew up in the 90s, this isn't exactly ancient history here, but that left wing was always antagonistic and skeptical about big corporations, including big pharma. And now they switched into, no, no, no anything Pfizer says is, is uh, you know, God's word. It's like the, uh, it's the Ten Commandments, right? So you can't, even, you can't even question it. You can't even begin to question it. It's fascinating how that was able to be switched so rapidly. And then you, you add on to the fact that the same people who were against these powerful government entities, the deep state, that's the only context I ever heard about that growing up was from, you know, left-wingers, the, the peace and love hippie types. And now they're in favor, according to the opinion polls, they have a much higher view of things like the FBI and the CIA. How do you think that switched so dramatically? Is it just because it's a short-term benefit that they're getting what they want by stopping Trump or whatever? It's very puzzling to me. I think it's a generational thing and a class thing. So there's somebody who recently published an article that said we have a reversal of the early 1970s, that the, the the old populist or conservative right, traditional right in the early 1970s was championing Richard Nixon, championing J. Edgar Hoover, championing aggressive generals who wanted to wage war mm-hmm. in all these different places uh, and were authoritarian and said you needed to you know, cut your hair and they were opposing civil rights, etc. Whereas, uh, and very pro-FBI, pro-CIA, pro-Pentagon, etc. Right. The old authoritarian right. And the, it was the independent left that was, you know, the free speech movement at Berkeley in 1965. They, Peter Dale Scott, who came up with the term deep state in 1969 to describe how the dual state had co-opted the national security apparatus against civil liberties and became a war machine as well internationally. And they were skeptical of the FBI, skeptical of the CIA, skeptical of institutions of influence, skeptical of their own parents who control those institutions, mm-hmm. a lot of them. Um, and now it's totally reversed. It's the left, the Democratic left that loves the FBI, loves the CIA, loves the National Security Agency, loves the surveillance state, 
It's mm-hmm. Obama who, uh, you know, attacked more whistleblowers than all the presidents before him combined concerning right. the national security state, especially. Uh, so, you know, the it's like, how did that shift happen? My view is it's because the left has shifted back to its 1930s version. And the 1930s version of the American left was very statist, was very popular frontish, was very communist influenced. This was a, uh, a, a group of the left that believed the state could solve all your problems. And that the only problems that existed were in private wealth and private power and private property and, and, and uh, locals, small level police. So they were anti your local cops but pro your federal security police. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the hard left has always loved security people. Right. In the sense of, you know, you look at the Stasi of East Germany, mm-hmm. the KGB of Russia. They, they love intel. They love information. They love control. They love thought control. Right. So it's a totally power. different group. Exactly. It's a, di- it's a very different generational shift than the 1960s group that was rebelling against that institutional influence. Uh, the other thing you have is a class war. Because overwhelmingly, the Democratic left now, in terms of its decision makers, are professional class oriented. And like where you see breaks within the political right is the professional class and the working class often don't agree. So it was members of the professional class on the right that was disproportionately anti-Trump, disproportionately went along with lockdowns, things like that. Your populist right had no interest in it whatsoever. And your populist right has... Now, in truth, has always been skeptical of institutions of influence. It just got diverted by anti-communism. So in the 60s and 70s, anti-communism led a lot of people in the populist right to be more concerned about communism than they were about the CIA or the FBI or a military power infrastructure uh, and a military industrial complex machine out of control. But once the communism was over, the Cold War was dead. They were going to revert to their old populist traditions, which was to be anti-war. You know, they're labeled isolationist. It just means, like John Adams said, we don't go searching abroad for monsters to destroy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's the, it's one of the oldest, exact oldest American traditions that exist. Right. And many of them, uh, and what has happened is Trump has alerted and awakened them to how corrupt our law enforcement is at the national level. So they, they, they were a little bit asleep at the wheel about mm-hmm. the FBI, mm-hmm. a little bit asleep at the wheel about the Department of Justice, a little bit asleep at the wheel about judges. So it's more like the late 60s, early 70s, where a lot of people on the right woke up to the politically woke judges of that time, letting criminals go, issuing crazy rulings, trying to control your local school system, ordering bus routes about where which, which kid would go to which school. Uh, the, we're back to that era of the professional class, and I think it's a class war. The professional class believes they are the best to govern, and they believe the best way for them to govern is through the mechanism and means of the state. Mm-hmm. Whereas the uh, on the left, on the right, they think, uh, the professional class thinks corporations and churches are the way to govern. Your populist working class base would like neither elite to govern. Mm-hmm. They would like them to govern. More power to ordinary people, as much as power, economically, culturally, politically, right. socially, you name it. And that class rebellion is also what's at the heart of this. The, now the professional class runs the seventh floor of the FBI. I mean, look at how many lawyers are there. How many of them were not lifetime federal aid? They didn't come up through the FBI. They got promoted from the outside over and over again. The guy who sued Alex Jones, the FBI agent, he's actually an FBI lawyer, right? Mm. It's way too many professional class people co-opting that. That's what's made the professional class embrace it, particularly on the left, and what made the working class increasingly skeptical of it quite correctly. Right. And that, that's very insightful analysis. I haven't heard that with a return to sort of the 1930s FDR playbook. And so FDR was obviously the, the godfather of the administrative state, significantly expanded the role of government, significantly expanded between him and Woodrow Wilson, 
uh, significantly expanded, you know, centralized power and its control over local jurisdictions. You know, FDR even made private possession of gold illegal, right, and, and internment camps. And so this was very much, you know, the closest thing we had to a dictator and obviously the first one to buck the trend of, of not stepping down after two terms. Oftentimes we look at things as they've been for the last few decades. And if you go back a little bit further, you see where some of these roots take off. Now, the administrative state is obviously a, a big problem. So much of our of our corruption is, is due to these unelected bureaucrats who increasingly control more and more of our lives and, and, and have more power. You know, the politicians are one thing, but they can be problematic, but a lot of the rulemaking happens at the administrative level. There's also the, on international basis, there, there are non-governmental organizations who are corralling more and more power and having more and more power to influence the United States, Western Europe, countries around the world. And they kind of tie into that aspect as well. Can you sort of go into, you made some interesting points about the World Economic Forum and how it sort of uses its connections to influence policies around the world. I mean, we saw this, people were wondering, like, how did every single government, with maybe a couple exceptions, sort of coalesce around the same policy prescriptions in terms of lockdowns and, and how to treat COVID and all that. And a lot of this is due to the fact that these organizations like World Economic Forum, you know, take these leaders from around the world and then, you know, they, they give them this information and maybe there's some groupthink aspect to it or maybe there's there's something more sinister involved. But can you sort of go over how, how some of these non-governmental entities are influencing policy around the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really goes all the way back to Cecil Rhodes' roundtable, where they came up with this kind of deep state infrastructure. And they recognized that you not only had to have control over the levers of power within the administrative state and have docile or compliant individuals in elected uh, uh, positions of power so that they did not meaningfully restrict or regulate that administrative state doing the deep state's bidding, if you will. But they also needed two other areas of influence in the academia, think tank, non-governmental organization world, and in the media. And so Cecil Rhodes Roundtable focused on instituting influence in both places. And that model has been subsequently used by uh, various governments uh, over the last century. So uh, plus, and we've done it here in the United States. The CIA mastered it. Uh, the, you know, as Robert Kennedy said, his family had been involved in a 60-year fist fight with the CIA. Mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy Jr. blames the CIA for the death of both his father and his uncle That's John. That's right. Um, and, uh, but part of it was what the CIA did is created front groups all over the place. Indeed, the communists uh, mastered this in the 1940s when they created the so-called popular front. China has its own version of the popular front today, which is to create front entities and organizations to institute their ideology that are not openly and overtly reflective and representative of that ideology. So uh, the CIA loves using non-governmental organizations to institute influence in a wide range of places, often disguised as charities, medical provision places, things like that. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're planning their CIA spooks throughout. And so the World Economic Forum is simply one more representation and example of that. The, the people who really mastered it in the United States initially were the Rockefellers. So Rockefeller not only created the Rockefeller Foundation, helped create the Council on Foreign Relations that had extraordinary. I mean, there was a period of time where no secretary of state was appointed that wasn't supported, endorsed or a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Mm. And that's how powerful they became. But they topped what the Rhodes Roundtable did uh, with quickly within a decade. Organizations like American Cancer Society might think, oh, that's a, some doctors who care about cancer. Nope, it was founded by John D. Rockefeller. Uh, half, John D. Rockefeller took out half of the medical schools in America and completely shifted and wrote medical school curriculum within a decade. Uh, medical school curriculum, by the way, that embraced eugenics uh, and, and pushed it through state legislatures and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Why? By leveraging think tanks, academies, media, public institutions, and these fake NGOs, these organizations that really have a disguised agenda. So you look at the World Economic Forum. It is a spinoff of the Bilderberg Group. Uh, it was just another, in fact, it originated from the Bilderberg Group. Who picked the Bilderberg Group? The CIA actually did. The CIA came up with it. It, it was an idea originated in Europe for let's bring back these institutional areas of influence and let's be anti-Soviet and let's have a think tank organization mm -hmm. that can help promote ideas, unifying Europe and the United States in the post-war era. It was filled with ex-royalty people who still want to re, you know, put back the king or queen in their local jurisdiction, their local nation, uh, filled by a lot of ex-Nazis who <laughs> were, were littered throughout the organization or ex-fascists. Uh, and the CIA otherwise picked the list. And the Bilderberg Group got controversial in the 1990s. So they sort of went underground a little bit. They pulled back from public attention. And that's when the World Economic Forum stepped in. Klaus Schwab is a derivative of the Bilderberg Group. And they became the new public front of this elitist agenda. And their goal is to control thought uh, at multiple levels. So to say, here's the way the world needs to be and persuade people in positions of power in the media, uh, in the think tanks, in the academy and in government to behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. And one group they've been aligned with or one person they've been aligned with who modeled his own so-called philanthropy structure on the Rockefellers is, of course, one Bill Gates. And Bill Gates worked with the World Economic Forum that created Event 201 that said what would happen in a coronavirus pandemic. And they got all these people to say things that had never been done before in the history of public health. And Bill Gates became the number one donor to public health around the globe. Politico in Europe's version in 2017 wrote a, a piece about a bunch of people in public health saying this is going to be a disaster. This guy has co-opted every public health institution in the globe. I mean, he's he's buying off everybody that I mean, right behind the United States, the biggest donor to the World Health Organization. Right. I mean, that's the level of influence. Imperial College that created all those fake models that said the world was going to end unless we did lockdowns. Number one donor, Bill Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. The other, the, the University of Washington group that also put up those bogus models for the U.S. Number one donor, private donor, Bill Gates Foundation. So it's Gates, 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 Gates. And how he did it in the World Economic Forum got away with it is they recognized that they could co-opt the public health institutions around the globe to everybody thought alike and that anybody who thought differently was pushed out, pushed aside, uh, shoved away, didn't get promoted, got demoted, got dismissed. And this is how they institutionally influenced something to where we had a almost, as you know, universal reaction to the pandemic that was completely ahistorical without right. any evidentiary foundation and proved to be utterly disastrous. This is what happens when you let elites run the world. It sounds so conspiratorial when you sort of frame it as these, these few organizations control the world and all this. And I was I would never several years ago have given that much thought. But you know, luckily now we actually see some of the things that they've discussed beforehand and then see it come to fruition. And then you see WEF's credit. They've been way more transparent than I think the, the Bilderberg Group has, right? Where they've actually relayed what some of the things they hope to be accomplished in the world. And this is how you get, as you said, you know, a coalition, the same exact policies from almost every government on COVID at the same time. We also see this with a lot of the green energy stuff, right? There's been trillions and trillions and trillions spent on green energy. And now countries like Germany are going to go into the winter and freeze and they're de-industrializing. 
And but yet no one seems to want to change course because the leaders of these nations collectively decided that fossil fuels are evil. We must go green. They spent three point eight trillion, I think, in the last decade on green energy and fossil fuels went down from 82 to 81 percent of, of, of total energy consumption. But they're fixated on this issue as well. And, you know, a lot of these these global health directives, there's widespread agreement amongst these countries. What do you think the motive is behind some of this? fixation with they talk about a lot about the central bank digital currencies right klaus Schwab used to talk about that now we see actual officials and governments and the ecb and all over the world talking about it and we see a lot of fixation on the green energy stuff what do you think the motivations behind that are so i mean a lot of it is shared agenda what the 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 biggest thing that unites these kind of corrupted power hungry elites is an obsession over control they want control 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 and so the and that explains a lot of their actions from the desire for global digital currencies to uh, the various lockdowns that took place. It was almost a test at how much control a small group of people could have over the mass of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is probably the oldest battle in the history of humanity. In other words, ever since we've had a surplus of wheat, uh, the the uh, surplus of food so that you didn't have to be a hunter scavenger to survive individually. We've had a small group of people that have wanted to govern and control the rest of us and control those resources particularly. And this goes back, you know, the Malthusian, and in particular, they tend to have an obsession with population size and scale. That's right. And so this goes back to Malthus and the Club of Rome and all of those organizations. They're obsessed with pop- Planned Parenthood obsessed with population control. This has been a Bill Gates obsession from day one. Mm-hmm. He's admitted this and openly conceded this. He believes vaccines will lower the population. Now, he believes that because he thinks parent women will have less children. That's his public excuse for it. There's others that suggested more nefarious agenda and objective there. And the effects of the COVID-19 vaccine that he championed uh, raised those questions once again. But so they believe in uh, population control and they believe right now the most effective means to do so is resource control. And so resource control is being disguised, in my view, as a pro-environmental mechanism to protect Mother Nature. And even though the science, uh, anybody that takes any deep dive into the science, and you can listen to Bjorn Lumberg, longtime environmentalist, longtime Greenpeace guy who's written about this extensively, talked about this extensively, multiple documentaries about it. And he detailed how we simply do not face an extinction level risk at all Mm -hmm. over the next century uh, plus from the current environmental situation. Mm -hmm. So and and everybody sees this on their everyday lives, like John Kerry's championing environmental control, but he flies on his private jet everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obama says we got to really worry about the rising tides, but he's buying property right next to the ocean. Mm -hmm. People like, hold on a second. There seems to be a disconnect from what you're saying and what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Almost every promise Al Gore made, he's become a billionaire. Al Gore, yep. and that, that, uh, you know, that, that's a wake up call to people. His environmentalism made him a billionaire. I should tell you something maybe up other than what you're being told. But almost every statement, promise, prediction he made in, uh, in his famous documentary, uh, Inconvenient Truth, has turned out to be false, right. utterly false. So this is a disguised agenda to seize power, to control resources under a different guise, masked in a different way, to once again restore more power to the elite at the expense of the massive elite. Right. You will own nothing and be happy. That's exactly right. right. Eat those crickets and be Yeah, and yeah be right, right. And that's that's the, the other aspect as well. We see Bill Gates buying all, up all this farmland, and they're also pushing these fake meat alternatives. I believe Schwab as well, they talk a lot about population control. I know I've seen Bill Gates talk about it. I've seen the WEF uh, commentate about it. So that and that's essentially the one of the roots of the of this whole uh, green agenda is population control, even though depopulation is going to be our biggest issue, not not, you know, the growth in population. So 
I, I think you're on you're you're spot on with that. Is is it's a it's a fundamental belief that they need to control resources in order to control the population. And obviously food and energy being the most important ones, that's what they're gonna focus on. What you, you have some interesting theories as well about the twenty twenty four race. So we know Trump is going to announce Anytime now, it's probably will announce by the time this is out. You know, a lot of people obviously are very pleased with, with DeSantis. He seems to be have a lot of the Trump qualities, but is a is effective and adept and and just on it. Do you think he's going to challenge Trump? And what do you think is going to happen on the Democratic side in terms of the ticket? So uh, DeSantis has told everybody for a year that there's zero chance he'll challenge Trump. And there was a loose agreement between uh, DeSantis and Trump for there to be a Trump-DeSantis ticket in 2024. And uh, whether you know Trump will sustain that, we'll see, because you never know for sure with Trump. But fortunately or unfortunately, that's the nature of the man. So it might end up being Trump-Lake if Lake wins the governorship of Arizona, for example. I could see Trump could see liking that, that you mm -hmm. know, th that kind of combination. Uh, a woman vice presidential candidate, telegenic, fits his biases about lookism and other things that he, he does have. And so, uh, but I, I think it'll be Trump. Uh, Trump wants it. Trump will get it. Now they're, they're they may escalate against him. May try to bring some bogus criminal indictment, et cetera. I don't see any of that changing uh, the Republican base on Trump. Now Trump, as you noted, needs to fix or at least for you know assure people he will fix two major areas. One was terrible personnel choices, mm -hmm. and for this you can just listen to Trump. Right? He, Trump himself has referred to almost all of his cabinet members as idiots and losers. Well, who put him there? Trump did. Right. So, you know, Trump put Fauci in, uh, in charge. He didn't have to. Put Burks in charge. Didn't have to. Put Pompeo in charge. Didn't have to. Those are all his. Madison in charge. Didn't have to. Tillerson in charge. I mean, all these people he said are idiots and losers. Uh, you know, John Bolton as a national security advisor right. that blew up the North Korean peace deal that Trump was trying to work on. Mattis. So, that, you know, Matt, I mean, just mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Christopher Ray, FBI, that's on Trump. Uh, his own, as you noted, his own Department of Homeland Security undermining him on a regular basis, waging a political war against him during the election, uh, help, helping his own FBI suppressing information that was critical and essential for the American public to make an informed choice in the 2020 election. All on Trump. So he has not as yet explained how he's going to not repeat mm -hmm. the mistakes of uh, uh, he used to say, I hire the best people. Yeah. Uh, maybe he did in the private space as president. He hired the worst people, mm -hmm. according to him, by yeah. his own judgment. So and how is he going to fix will not help that, by the way, either. You need, you need like an effective legislator who has a lot of experience, who knows how to play the system, who knows how to how to govern, how to get legislation across, how to look over things. The lake is an, is an outsider as well. So that that's not going to help things at all. No, not, not in yeah. terms of getting things done, but Trump mm -hmm. thinks entirely. And so I chose Pence. He's like, Oh, look, he's a family guy, religious guy. looks good. He's got the Marine haircut. Blah, blah, blah. That's right. Trump. Sadly, you know, the, uh, so other people around Trump are going to have to help steer Trump and Trump's going to have to be willing to let them steer him when it comes to po personnel and policy. Uh, on the domestic side of the equation. He's got great instincts in marketing. He's got great instincts on foreign policy. Uh, a lot of those instincts didn't translate in actual policy because he hired terrible people, personnel-wise. Now, he knows a lot of these people are now bad. He knows Bill Barr was bad. He knows Pompeo was bad. He knows uh, Tillerson was bad. He knows that now, but we'll see if he does anything with that information if he gets back into the White House. Um, and I think that's the biggest question some of his critics have. The other is on the vaccine-related issues. 
he took he he got suckered into taking you know operation warp speed and pushing mm-hmm. a drug that many people now do not believe or see is safe effective or even a vaccine um the excess death numbers are worse now than they were during the pandemic in many western countries uh he's got to he's got to walk that back uh now there's ways he can he could take the brooke jackson case and say take the ben shapiro approach and say you know what I, I thought we were getting something safe and effective that inoculated. Pfizer lied to me. The big drug companies lied to me. Yep. They should be held accountable. That's a yeah. good escape route for him. That's a good exit path for him. But whether he takes it or not, you know, the, the beauty and the burden of Trump is his huge ego. His ego is such that mm-hmm. uh, he will often ignore advice that he should ignore. That's the virtuous side of it. The vice side of it, he'll ignore advice he should get and take yep. and use. Uh, so we'll find out which Trump we get. But I think at this point, it's Trump or bust. Uh, I can't see anyone else winning the 2024 election at this point, unless there's some really radical, dramatic change between here and now. Uh, and I think Biden and Harris will likely run again. And the problem is Harris is a disaster as well. And mm-hmm. Democrats don't have a deep bench anymore. The Clintons helped obliterate it So the uh, because they didn't want any competition to themselves. And so, like, Newsom, Newsom's not a viable national candidate. So I think the problem, I mean, Cuomo had to leave the governorship in New York. He was supposedly going to be the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they don't really have uh, AOC has been a huge disappointment to the left itself because of her warmongering policies. So uh, you see that in the protest occurring at her town halls. So you, the, the Democrats don't have a viable candidate for 2024 is the current answer. I don't see Biden giving up power either. So regardless of his mental acuity or his deterioration, I don't think it's going to happen. I agree. Robert, last thing, what gives you most hope and what gives you most consternation for for the future? The most consternation is just that the institutions of influence are so corrosively corrupted that they're not only unethical and immoral, but incompetent. Uh, And that they could stumble and bumble us right into a world war, a nuclear war, another global conflict, a global economic catastrophe, a global financial crisis that makes the GFC of 2008 look like small change. That that's my grave concern is professional class elite power has degraded, not just morally, but intellectually to such a degree they endanger all of us. And anybody who started to study the long history of human civilizations realizes that happens all the time. The elites just completely fail. Um, that's where the conspiracy theories that they're really super secretly competent and are just working against us miss the fact that human history says nine times out of 10, these people are idiots, uh, moral and otherwise. But the, then the thing that gives me the best hope is ordinary people. Uh, ordinary people continue to wake up, participate in public debate, public dialogue, public discussion. During the 1920s eugenics era, both the United States and Europe, almost nobody spoke up against it. Even though it was a professional class coup against the working class and the poor of the country, nobody spoke out. I mean, uh, the famous Buck v. Bell case, she didn't have a, her, her lawyer was a fake lawyer. She was, the lawyer was working for the Rockefellers on the other side. The lawyer wasn't working for her. Staged fake case, kind of like the Alex Jones show trial. Uh, Buck v. Bell was that uh, authorized eugenics in America. Right. So I think people support that at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the the fact that ordinary people are waking up, getting active, participating in the court of public opinion, pushing back against these elite corrupt elites is what gives me the most faith. I mean, once again, the best hope for humanity is humanity itself. I agree with that. Robert Barnes, that was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for being on with me. Where can people find you? They can find any and all content, including exclusive content at Viva barneslaw.locals.com and we'll put that in the podcast notes as well appreciate you having on man thanks a lot if you enjoyed our show 
please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.